Hello again, friends. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremy McCandless, and you're very welcome. You're joining with a community of people who've made the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives. And the project is to work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But you can do this at whatever pace you want. New episodes are uploaded every day, Monday to Friday, and you can either just pick up from where you join us today, or maybe consider going right back to the beginning and subscribing and just following along at the pace that suits you. And that way you'll never miss another single episode. Please do hang on at the end and I'll tell you lots of ways that you can connect and access lots of other free Bible teaching resources that I make available. But other than that, we'll drop back in and pick up where we left off last time and I'll see you at the end. Bye-bye for now. Okay, friends, hello again. We're on this amazing journey together, season three, through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're about halfway through chapter 17. We've just finished this amazing section called the Transfiguration, and now Jesus and his disciples are coming down from the mountain, and we shall see things kick off again immediately as soon as he gets down from the mountainside. So I'm picking up and I'm going to read to you from verses 14 to 21 of chapter 17, which tells us, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have the faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So remember, these events are occurring just after the transfiguration. So no sooner had Jesus just come down from this place of revealed heavenly glory than he's confronted with a very earthly shall we say problem a very practical demand is made of him immediately upon his return a man brings to them his son who most translations describe as epileptic and he brings him initially we are told it would seem to the disciples and now the disciples and the father and the lad they appear immediately now the dad and the son probably appeared with the lad when Jesus was absent because he was up on the mountainside. Now our modern translations describe the boy as being epileptic, but the Greek word used here literally means to be moonstruck. So whatever is going on here, clearly the boy's condition is attributed to a malign influence of evil spirits in this situation. And on this case, it was being blamed on the moon as was common in those days. 
But it's obvious that this condition was serious, so serious in fact that he was a danger to himself, which is my modern experts think that this might be a case of epilepsy. And the reason most of the translators have gone with this is because this was a case of him not permanently displaying erratic behaviour, but rather the moonstruck description suggests periods of incoherence more aligned today with what we would call epilepsy. I get a sense that we can almost feel the relief among the disciples when Jesus returns and they feel that he can get a grip of this situation that they've not been able to deal with. And quite simply, with one word, Jesus tells this malevolent force to be gone and the boy is instantly cured. Now it's worth noticing the faith of the boy's father. Even though the disciples we were told earlier had been given the power to cast out devils, here was a case in which they had tried and very singly and publicly failed. And yet in spite of that, the father is still here. In spite of the failure of the disciples, it seems the father never doubted the power of Jesus to deal with the situation and he simply waited for his return. I think there's something very poignant about that not just in the faith of the Father, but there's also something very poignant in the way it feels very universal and also very contemporary about the how the disciples felt when they felt they had failed in this matter. And I feel today there are many people in the church today, people of God, the professed disciples of Jesus, who in many ways feel they have failed and are powerless to deal with many of the ills of the human condition. I'm not just talking about the demonic here. I'm talking about the whole ills and sicknesses of society that we seem in many ways to be powerless to resist. Yet at the same time, this tells us that we must remember and keep and hold that we can go beyond our human frailties. If we can just get people through the barrier of religion, through even the failures of the modern church, then I truly believe we can still help people find and access Jesus. If only we can help people to get to the authentic Jesus himself, then they will receive the things they need. It's true to say, I think today, it is at one and the same time our failure and our challenge that we need to do this. And even though that many have lost their faith all around us, their faith in the church, I do believe that many have never lost the desire to spiritually seek, to spiritually try and find the authentic God, the authentic Christ, and the authentic power of his spirit. And that is still available to anyone who approaches God in faith and it is available to us the disciples of God and it is there to help people in their time of need. However to get back to that particular day we see here that even after his return from the spiritual high of the mountaintop he immediately meets the ever-present demands of the people. Straight from the glory of the mountaintop he comes down and he's met by human suffering. Straight from hearing the voice of God, he comes and hears the demands of the human need for suffering to be addressed. And you know, that makes me think that it is true to say that even today, the most Christ-like person in the world is still the one who never finds his fellow human beings in need of help to be a nuisance. You know what, it's very easy to feel religious in a moment of prayer 
or Bible study or meditation. It's easy to feel close to God when we shut the world out. But friends, there is always a danger of when we retreat away to those places that to stay in those places and that they end up becoming not a place of faith but a place of escapism from the world. But real faith reminds us that we must at some point get up off our knees and go out and meet the world and its problems face on. We must go out to bring the ministry and the power of Christ into every human situation of need. Real Christianity draws strength from God, but only in order to give it to others. Real Christianity involves meeting God in the quiet places, but also meeting people at their point of need in the streets and in the workplace and bringing God with us into those situations. And real Christianity means taking our own needs to God, not that we just find peace and we find a place of undisturbed comfort there, but that we may be enabled, empowered, effectively and powerfully to meet the needs of others. The power of the Holy Spirit is only given as a gift to every believer for going out and doing good and doing the will of God. That's why he gave it to us. There is nothing more Christ-like than prayer leading to compassion but then twinned with action and we see in the story the central need of faith without which nothing can happen faith is seen as the instrument which enables men and women to literally move the mountains of difficulty which block our path to god and the path of others in their search for god also continue with the text another two verses Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So again we see Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. It seems he really does need to keep reminding them of what the main thing is, the real thing is here. But moving on, the text then says, Verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, those who had received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Okay, a little bit of background. The temple at Jerusalem was a costly place to run. There were daily and morning and evening sacrifices, which each involved the offering of at least a year old lamb. And along with the lamb, there were other offerings made of wine, flour, oil and grain, and also other small animals. The incense which was burned every day had to be bought and prepared. Think about the costly hangings and the robes of the priests that needed replacing and the role of the high priest itself. Apparently the robes of the high priest were worth a huge amount of money and all this would have required an income. So on the basis of the law and for the running of the temple Moses said this. For the running of the tabernacle Moses was heard to say this. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel which weighs 20 giras the half shekel is an offering to the lord 
So we can see in the law of Moses it was laid down that every male Jew over 20 years of age must pay an annual temple tax of one half shekel. Now one half shekel was equal to two Greek drachma and the tax was commonly called the temple tax as it's actually called here in this passage. Now the value of the tax must be evaluated in the light of the fact that a working man's daily wage in Palestine in the first century at the time of Jesus was less than the temple tax. His daily rate was less than the temple tax. The temple tax was in fact equivalent to around about two days pay and theoretically the tax was obligatory and the temple authorities had the power to obtain someone's goods if they failed to pay that annual tax. And this attacks also, which had to be paid upon every visit to the temple. Now, the method of collection of the annual tax was very carefully organised. On the first month of the year, which is March of our year, an announcement was made in all the towns and villages of Palestine that it was time to pay the tax. And then on the 15th of the month, temple tax collectors would arrive. They'd set up booths in each town and village and people had to go to the booth and pay the tax. And if the tax was not paid by the 25th of that month, it could only then be paid direct to the temple in Jerusalem with a penalty. In this passage, we see Jesus being asked to pay the temple tax. Now, the tax authorities here have come to Peter and they ask him if his master paid his taxes. There is little doubt that the question was asked with a malicious intent based on what we've seen these authorities up to so far and that they were kind of hoping that perhaps that Jesus would refuse to pay. For if he refused, the religious authorities would then have had grounds for making a legitimate accusation against him based on the law of Moses as they saw it. Peter's immediate answer was that Jesus did not pay. Then he went and told Jesus about the situation, and Jesus responds using a sort of parable. Now, the picture he uses, people draw two possible interpretations from it, but in either case, the meaning is the same. In the ancient world, the Romans and other conquering and colonizing nations had little care or regard for governing in a way that was for the benefit of of those subjects. Rather, they considered those people, the conquered nation, as purely existing to make things easier for them. The result was that the conquering nation never paid tribute. It was always the subject nations who were to bear the burden and pay the tax. So Jesus is saying here, God is the King of Israel, but we ourselves are the true Israel and we are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Outsiders may have to pay, but we are free. And another image he draws upon here, which is probably even more straightforward and simpler to follow, is he says that a king's job is to impose taxes on a nation, and he certainly does not try and impose them on his own family. And it was indeed for the support of the household of God that these taxes were originally imposed. The tax in question here is the temple tax, which was for the house of God. And Jesus was the son of God. Do you remember, he said, when, his, when he was eight years old, when his parents were trying to find him, when he went missing in Jerusalem, and he says, did you not know I must be in my father's house about his business? So he's saying, how could he, the son of God, be under obligation to pay the tax, which was for his own house and family? 
Nonetheless, surprisingly, Jesus says they must pay the tax, but not because of the compulsion of any law, but because of it representing a higher duty. He said we must pay lest we offend them. So when he's saying that we shouldn't offend them, he's not saying it in a way that we shouldn't injure or annoy or injure the pride of someone. He's saying we have to do this in order that we don't put a stumbling block in someone's way that causes someone else to trip up and fall by feeling that they can do the same thing. So Jesus is really saying in a way that we must pay because we don't want to set a bad example to others. We must not only do our duty, but he says we must go beyond, above and beyond our duty in order to show others what they ought to do. What this tells me is that in the Christian life, there are many exemptions that we could claim because of God's grace. Many, many things which are excusable for us because we've been saved by grace, but are still not the things we should do. And what this tells me is that we must claim nothing and allow ourselves nothing which might possibly be a bad example to someone else or might cause our brother to fall. A few years ago, many years ago, in fact, oh, when was it, 1999, 2000, I found myself called almost by accident to a ministry when I was supporting people one-to-one with alcohol and drugs problem. And I felt God, through this passage, very clearly called me to stop drinking alcohol, even moderately. Now, not in a legalistic way, and I haven't drunk to this day, I haven't drunk alcohol to this day since. But the basis in which I felt God called me to do that is here were people who had a life controlling problem. And it didn't take long for a conversation in a pastoral role to switch to how come you can have a drink and I can't, that I felt that I needed as an example not to drink at all, lest I cause my brother to fall. Anyway, to get back to the story and where it's going, because it takes a bit of a strange turn in a minute, there are some people in church history have asked why this little odd story was ever even included in the gospel. Why select the story? Matthew's Gospel was written between AD 80 and AD 90. So what was going on here at that time that probably Matthew felt compelled to share the story? Well, just a little before this time when this Gospel was written, the Jews and the Messianic Christians had been faced with a very, very real and very disturbing problem. We have said and seen that every male over the age of 20 had to pay a temple tax. But remember, the temple was totally destroyed in AD 70, and it was never to be rebuilt. Now, after the destruction of the temple, the Roman emperor, a guy called Vespirian, enacted that the half-shekel temple tax should now be paid to the treasury of the Temple of Jupiter in Rome. And here, indeed, was a very real problem. Many of the Jews and the Jewish Christians were violently inclined to rebel against this enactment and the twisting of this rule. And, of course, any perceived rebellion would have had disastrous consequences because it would be utterly crushed at once. And it would have also meant that the Jews and the burgeoning Messianic Christians, it would create a reputation of them being bad 
and disloyal and disaffected citizens of the Roman Empire, which could have only led to persecution even sooner than it actually came. And many believe that Matthew put this, included this story in the Gospels fundamentally because it was true, but also to tell the Christians, especially the Jewish Christians, that however unpleasant things might be at times, the duty of a citizen must never be overlooked. It tells us that, that Christianity and good citizenship go hand in hand. The Christian who decides he can exempt themselves from the duties of good citizenship is not only feeling in their citizenship, they are also, in a sense, feeling in Christianity. Now, this was a very heated debate in the early church for a couple of centuries after this, and some who took this perspective too far ended up forming non-Christian cults like the Manichaeans and the Donatists, who separated themselves off totally from anybody else who had paid any form of tax to the Roman government or to Caesar. So Jesus in the next verse gives us a very strange insight into how we might pay our debts. So listen to this and see if you can work out what's going on there. Nevertheless, he said, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them from me. Now we come to the story itself. And if we just take it with a plain ritual view, it means that Jesus appears to tell Peter to just go and catch a fish, and there he'll find a coin in the fish's mouth, which would be sufficient to pay the taxes for both of them. Now it's worth noting that this gospel story never tells us or demonstrates that Peter actually did this. We don't see the story played out in fact. And the story ends with Jesus saying, take it and give it to them for me and for you. Now for many Bible experts, the miraculous aspects of this story, if they were taken to be a miracle, literally, if the story was taken literally, as something that Peter did, then they have some difficulty with it on several grounds. Firstly, God is never seen anywhere else to allow a miracle that helps someone to do something that they could have easily done simply with their own resources. Because in a sense, if God started answering those issues that we could deal with practically in a miraculous way, that would in a sense cause us more spiritual harm than it would do good. However poor the disciples might have been, and they weren't actually really that poor by the standards of their days, they had an occupation and some of them employed others, it seems unlikely that any one of the disciples would need a miracle to enable them to earn a half shekel. The miracle also breaks the great decision of Jesus that he would never use his own miraculous powers to his own ends. We have seen him resist the devil when the devil said tempted him to turn stones into bread to satisfy his own hunger. He refused them. He could have always, many times, used his miraculous powers to boost his own prestige, if nothing else as a miracle worker, but he always refused to do the miraculous and misuse the miraculous power in that way. In the wilderness, Jesus decided once and for all that he could not and would not selfishly use his power. And if this story is taken with just a plain literal view, it would seem to suggest that Jesus rescinded that perspective. And he would use his, his divine power to satisfy not only his own personal worldly needs, but that of his disciples. 
And that just seems to me something that Jesus would never do. So if that is so, how should we approach this passage? Are we to say that this is merely a legendary story, a piece of imaginative speculative fiction as they would call it today with no truth behind it? Far beyond that friends, there must be something else going on here. Now Bible experts, people with wiser and bigger brains than me have picked this passage apart and in the main they settle on an interpretation that makes sense to the majority and I must admit it does to me too. I'm not saying this is definitive and this is one of those cases in the Bible where this is my perspective on it, but if you find another, that's absolutely fine. Go with that. I am not dogmatic on this issue. But what it seems happens here, in my estimation, is that Jesus says to Peter, he says, you know what, Peter, you're right. They've asked about us paying the temple tax and we should pay this payment because it is a just and lawful payment and if nothing else we should pay it as a good example to others. And I think what he's, what he's suggesting here, if you haven't got any money today to pay it, then go back to fishing for a day. You can gain enough money in a day or even an hour's fishing to pay your dues. A day of fishing will soon produce that which is needed. So in a sense says, we can always go back to work. And that is the way to pay your debts. So what Jesus is saying here, it seems to me, is probably said with a compassionate, ironic smile. Smile, and yes, the use of dramatic language or a pictorial story. But I don't believe he's telling Peter literally to go and get coins out of fish mouses. I am of the opinion he's telling him that in our day's work, when necessary, we can get everything we need to pay any legitimate financial obligations that we face. And if the financial obligations we face are there because of our greed or selfishness, then we need to make the changes in our life to build a life where we're not spending above and beyond our means. But he's saying here, there's always a day's work which will always give us enough to pay for any legitimate financial or religious obligations we face. And the rest, we can just leave the rest to God and trust him for that. Okay, people, that's it for today. I do hope you found that helpful. It was quite a difficult and multi-layered passage today, but I do hope I've given you a few key insights by going through it. But that's it for today. I'll just say thank you for now. We'll be starting off, launching off again on a new chapter tomorrow, Matthew chapter 18, where I'll be asking what does it really take to be great? But if you're enjoying our time together, please do subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts from. Make sure you never miss another single episode and make sure you make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life also. And please remember, there is always a full transcript available in the episode notes of this podcast, wherever it is you're getting it from. And if you're not seeing active links there, then just go to the host website, which is the Bible Project 
www.buzzsprout.com and there you'll find lots of ways that you can connect with the ministry and access other free teaching and discipleship courses I make available there. So we leave it there for today. Thank you again and I'll see you right back here tomorrow I trust on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.